6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Nor a cloak of covetousness. Cloak is a specious pretext which conceals the real motive. And of course, covetousness. It's a desire to have more than that which one does not have a just right. That's the only commandment of the Ten Commandments that deals with intent. All the others are overt actions. But the covetousness is a heart thing. It's the one of the ten that is one of intent, not rather than an overt act. And God is witness. See, Paul appeals to God, the only one who knows the heart. God not is the only one that knows it. He's the one that's watching all the time. You and I live our lives before an audience of one. All the rest are irrelevant. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Wow, several things here. First of all, there's no apostolic title in this letter in the salutation. He doesn't see a need to do that. In future letters, he will. He will lean on that. He doesn't in Hebrews for a number of good reasons, but he does elsewhere. In verse 6, he has a list of what he did not do, but in verse 12, he's going to make a list of what he did do. The law says, don't do this and that. Grace says, it is done. It is finished. To telestai, paid in full. But it's interesting, he emphasized that he was not a financial burden to them. There's nothing wrong with getting money from the ministry, but he sought every chance he could of not being a financial burden to those that he's calling. And there's a number of examples of that throughout his letters. But support of the ministry is valid. 1 Corinthians 9 deals with that. But he says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Interesting term. It actually is a term like a nursing mother, or like a mother bird, if you will. Remember Jesus in the closing verses of Matthew 23 Speaking of Israel, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. That idiomatic, like a nursing mother in effect. Paul says we. It's always we by the three of them. You see, you've got Timothy and Silas. We were gentle among you even as a nurse cherith her, her children. And the word cherith is, is to warm, if you will, as birds covering their young with their feathers to warm and protect them. That occurs in Deuteronomy 22. It's also Psalm 91 opens that way. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, and so on. And loving care, a nurse like after her own children, not just her, her duty. You met people in Thessalonica, he never knew before, and how he loved them now as trophies of his grace. Boy, Paul's passion for the, his converts is very interesting. You see it uniformly in all his letters. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. See, he gave not just the gospel, he gave himself, gave ourselves. 
That's the antidote for professionalism. Boy, be careful of that professionalism. Paul wasn't professional. He was passionate, personal, caring. Dear to us. That that, that same word is beloved, by the way. You were beloved to us. But ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable to any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Night and day. That's a Hebraism there. It was also among the Greeks. In other words, a 25-hour day is another way of putting it, maybe. No 40-hour weeks for Paul. He worked day and night, literally. It's interesting, in the days of Thomas Jefferson, there was a great agitation for a 60-hour work week. 10-hour days versus 12 for a six-day week in his day. An interesting situation. And the word doulos, of course, means bond slave. Coeur d'Alene, by the way, is the heart of the bond slave. You may know that background here. We often speak of tent making. That term occurs in Acts 18.3. We don't know what it really means, by the way. We have a lot of presumptions. See, tents were made of uh, silicium, which was a hair of a species of shaggy goats. And that was a very flourishing occupation in Tarsus, where Paul came from. The word actually means tent tailor. Some scholars suspect it means the Jewish tallit, the, the prayer shawls would have those knots and so forth. But that's all speculation because that all came really somewhat later. In any case, he had a trade called tent making. We're not sure precisely what that might be. There's different conjectures among scholars. But the Talmud, incidentally, required that every Jewish father must circumcise his son and instruct him in the law and teach him a trade. Three things. Not just circumcision and teach him the Torah, but also to give him a trade that was required. He who teacheth not his son to trade doth the same as if he taught him to be a thief. Okay. So I guess he doesn't go into politics. Okay, fine. Let's go on. Jews did not have salaried teachers. Did you realize that? Saul's father was of means and may have been a textile merchant. Paul seemed to support himself somehow. At Thessalonica, his income from his work was supplemented by contributions from Philippi. He worked at Corinth, we know. He refused to accept support from the Corinthians. He didn't do that everywhere, but he did do it there. He worked at Ephesus, we know, from Acts 20. So somehow he found it useful to not be a burden to his parish, if you will. His, in, impen, his independence was important to him and his ministry. Why? It cut off criticism in 2 Corinthians 11. It set a worthy example in 2 Thessalonians 3, we'll see next time. He proved his unselfish love for them in 2 Corinthians 12. It allowed him to share his meager means to those in need. Wow. See, that's one of the great things about having me. That's one of the great things about having savings or work or having a, having a good financial success is that it gives you a way to help others. And God will use that, obviously. Well, he continues, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. That's his sermon. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably We behaved ourselves among you that believe. That's the way you make disciples. That's the way you witness. Their behavior confirmed their belief. Ye are witnesses. And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. A father and his own children, actually. Education plus discipline. Exhorted and comfort and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. 
We, notice the plurality. It's not just Paul himself, it's the trio. All these participles are in the plural, indicating that all three were engaged in this work. And comforted. Now that's a strange word. It actually means persuaded. It's, an old, it's part of the old English use of that word, but paramutheomai is persuaded. Okay. Now, what's, does that describe the church today? I don't think so. Someone has defined the average church service in a liberal church as when a mild-mannered man, a mild-mannered man, gets up before a group of mild-mannered people and urges them to become more mild-mannered. Now, if you're using the idioms or the paradigm, if you will, of the seven letter of Christ's seven letters, seven churches, which church is being described here? Anyone? Laodicea. I would that you were wor- uh, uh, cold or hot, but Luke, lukewarm, I will spew thee out. He's going to throw them up. I'll spew thee out of my mouth. Anyway, that you would walk worthy of God who have called you into his kingdom and glory. That's an interesting sentence for a number of reasons. Now, for, you've got the word mixed with faith. The walk here is peri, walk around, pateo. It's to walk, to walk about. The moral, it's referring to the moral conduct. It's present tense. It means a habitual conduct of David. When it's present tense, it means it's continuing. It doesn't mean it happened once in the present. It's not present perfect. Present tense, it's continuing. So it marks habitual conduct of daily life. Wow, okay. Paul was never content to simply gain large numbers of converts without seeking to induce them to walk worthily of the Lord they had professed. It wasn't how many people came down and made a decision for Christ. No, 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 no. How many had a walk that walked worthily? They were demonstrably changed in some way. Walk worthy. Key, ter- key term here. That who ha- God, uh, worthy of God, who hath what? Called you where? Into his kingdom. Wow. And kingdom and glory. He called you into his kingdom. Well, that sounds pretty good, except we say thy kingdom come, the Lord's Prayer. Most people, I'd say less than one in ten, have any idea what they're praying for. But the strange preamble here is that you should walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom. If you're going to be his kingdom, you've got to walk worthy. Whoops. I thought it's by faith alone. Well, yes, it is. But if you have faith, it'll have, you'll have a walk that's worthy. How do you walk worthy? How do you do that? Well, that's what we call being an overcomer, a metakoi, a partaker of Christ. Nan and I have just published a book on this very topic. And let me warn you, it's very controversial in some churches. And using the paradigm of Jesus' seven letter seven churches, which do you think was the most offended by our book? Well, a friend of ours, in fact, I think it was one of our board members said, uh, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs... You can tell which one you hit by the one that's yelping the loudest, right? So it's interesting to see which of the pastors are having huge problems with our book because it's a call to accountability. Walk worthy. Why? Because we are saved in keeping with our destiny, a child being born into a royal family, and he calleth you. That's a present active participle, to kalutus, which is the plural pronoun, humus. God is continually calling them. And the kingdom of God that centers in the person of the king, now a reality but with a future manifestation. 
And so that's what the kingdom is all about. God and no other establishes the kingdom. So we won't have to go down those paths right now. Let's move on to verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it, not as the word of men, but as, as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Wow. Heavy thing here. The word of God. Do we really understand that that which is in your laps right now is a supernatural instrument? It's the word of God. It is God-breathed, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16. That's what the Greek actually is. God-breathed. Well, it's a translation. Yes, it is. But today you can go right to the Greek or Hebrew without knowing the Greek or Hebrew with the tools that are around. It's pure, the Scripture says, from cover to cover. Psalm 119.40, Proverbs 35. God's Word is pure. That's why you don't mess around with a paraphrase. Use the best translation you can, but realize it's a translation and see what's behind it. If you don't do that, you'll miss all the wordplay. It is the originals are God-breathed. They are pure. Don't let anyone tell you different. When he says the Word of God, by the way, another surprise, he's talking about the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament's obsolete by the New. Oh, really? People are taught that. That's crazy. Paul, when he says scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. They were not humanly originated. We know now from computer studies that the Torah was given to Moses letter by letter. Pull one letter out and all the mathematical properties evaporate. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. Peter speaks of Paul's letters as scriptures. But that's later. 66 books penned by 40 authors over thousands of years is an integrated message system. Every detail is there by design and every detail points to Jesus Christ. How do you hear? See, eyes uh, deals with symbols that can be distort what words mean. The ear is God's portal. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. It's always the ear. Interesting. The eye seems to be Satan's portal or the flesh's portal. Eve saw the fruit that it was de- saw the fruit that was desired, and so forth. Interesting. The proof of the word of God is now going to follow in the six verses, verse fourteen. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Followers, imitators, if you will. And by the way, these were not superficial, stony soil type hearers as we talk about in Matthew 13, 20 and following. Remember the four kinds of soils and so forth. No, they produced fruit. They took root. And persecution is proof. The fact that they uh, endured that persecution is proof that it is of God. For ye, brethren, became followers of the church of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Persecution is proof. Now, the next, verse 15 and 16 are a vitriolic outburst, the likes of which you don't find anywhere else in Paul's writings. He unleashes here a bit. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and, and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Wow. Five participles. 
The first two are heiress and the picture of the past violent manifestations of their opposition. The remaining three are present tense and provide a sad evaluation of their opposition because they're continuing, in other words. Because they're present tense. Violent manifestations. Killed the Lord Jesus and prophets. And the, word, the verb killed is between Lord and Jesus. Separating the double name brings into striking relief the divine glory and the human character of the slain. It points to both, in other words. For unto, Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Those are not synonymous. The child is human. The son is divine. The child is born refers to a manger in Bethlehem. The son is given refers to a cross that was erected in Golgotha. Christ himself accused the Jews of killing their prophets in Matthew 23 and Luke 11 and elsewhere. And in the parable of the wicked husbandman. He pictured his own murder as the culmination of that in Matthew 21. And that charge was repeated by Stephen before the Sanhedrin and Paul in Acts 7, where Stephen is stoned. Please not. These things please not God. <laughs> That's one of these understatements that become emphatic. You know, in rhetoric, there's a, there's a time where you make it understated. It drives it home even more emphatically than if you bombast it, if you will. This, this did not please God. <laughs> it's so understated. It borders on humor. Contrary to all men, well, that's what Roman historian Tacitus charged the Jews with, hostile odium toward all men. And the Gentiles generally regarded the Jews as unsociable and an unfriendly race. And while the nation was divinely called to be a separated people, they had become a sinfully exclusive and bigoted nation. That's another part of the tragedy there. And Paul understood that their hostility to non-Jews was grounded not in their natural makeup, but in their rejection of the gospel and their determination to thwart its progress. Now that's not true today, by the way. The Jews have plenty of reasons to be hostile to the Gentiles from the crusade and all the history that's occurred since the first century. Un unbelievable carnage in the name of Christ. And we won't go through all that, but you need to understand that to understand the Jewish mind. They have justifiable apprehensions. But here, Paul understood their hostility, the hostility to the non-Jews, was because of the rejection of the gospel. Different kind of thing than going on today. There may be a mix today, actually. But anyway, moving on to verse 16. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They're forbidding, them, they're forbidding Paul to speak to the Gentiles that the Gentiles might be saved. Wow. Why? To fill up their sins always. Forbidding us to speak. They were obstructionists. And, of course, they're also jealous of Paul's success. He's getting a following. Of course, the hardest opposition to take is won by your own loved ones. Opposition of the world is most clearly revealed by the faithful preaching of Christ. To fill up their sins. That's a common Hebrew image of a measuring cup. Filling up. This cup passed from me, Jesus prayed, and so forth. That was a, a Hebraism. Just like the vials, in the, the seals, the uh, trumpets, and then the, the bowls in, in Revelation uh, 9 and following. Philip, punishment withheld is withheld until it's full, it's ripe. We find that the sin of the Amorites were not yet full, and so forth. 
Paul's outlook was dark indeed. And still, God will not make a full end. That's a surprise. In Je Jeremiah 30, and that's another whole teaching that I encourage you to dig into. In, in the 30s, Jeremiah in the 30s goes through all that. And there's fuller teaching of all that in the three chapters in Romans. Romans 9, 10, 11. Romans 9, Israel's past. Romans 10, Israel's present. And Romans 11, which is the future of Israel. All laid out for you by Paul. But continuing verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Do you feel the passion there? you feel the passion in the guy? It says, be bereaved of you. Being taken from you, that's being bereaved of you. That's aorist passive participle. That's a separation forced upon them. It's a compound form only here in the New Testament. It's like to be orphaned or bereft of parents. Only three weeks together, and yet eight or nine months after that first meeting, it demonstrates the ties of brotherhood among the believers. Taken from you. Bereaved of you, in effect. Wow. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. He wanted to come back to them, but he couldn't. Satan was in the way here, somehow. The word hindered is to break up the road, make it impassable. Somehow, he, Satan blocked it. For what is our hope or joy, or crown of rejoicing. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? See, our real hope, our crown of rejoicing, Paul was not content to be saved himself. He really had a passion for others. For ye are our glory and joy. Let's think about that a minute. That's his concluding phrase of this chapter. For ye are our glory and joy. So many we thought, boy, I'm looking forward to that crown to put on the glassy sea, and we have these other idioms that we indulge in. For Paul, it was his converts. They were his glory and his joy. Wow. Each chapter of this epistle ends with a reference to the return of Christ. In chapter 1, Christ's return is related to salvation. In chapter 2, Christ's return is related to service. To service. We'll watch the next one as we see. In chapter 3, chapter 1 was salvation. Chapter 2, service. Chapter 3 is sanctification. That is the most misunderstood process in the current church. My wife and I get more letters from people who are totally confused on the subject of sanctification because many pastors are confused and confusing their sheep on that subject. Remember the threefold paradigm of salvation. Past tense. Justification. Separation from the penalty of sin. Done, it was done on a cross 2,000 years ago. And you are declared not guilty of your sins the minute you accept Christ. That's done. He did it all, 100%. You can't add to it. Past tense of salvation. Separation from the penalty of sin. Present tense of salvation is sanctification. Separation from the power of sin. If you're an unbeliever, you're powerless. You're in bondage to sin. If you're a believer, you have access to the Holy Spirit that can deliver you from any addiction or any other problem you have. Because he can, he can do that. That's separation from the power of sin. The future tense of salvation, glorification. Separation from the very presence of sin. And most confusion about doctrine, particularly sanctification, is to un understand that it is a work in progress. Every one of us in this room are a work in progress. 
God is not finished with any of us, me included, of course. All of us. We're a work in progress. It started when we accepted Christ. Receiving Christ, don't treat it just as a victory as we usually do. No, no, it's a starting gun. That's the beginning of our opportunity to bear fruit for Him. That fruit will be measured. The fruit that He bore through us, not what we contrived. No, no, what He did. Sanctification, we'll talk about that next time. So what I'd like you to do for next time, I'd like you to read chapter 3, of course, but I'd like you to continue for the following 12 verses in chapter 4. I think we can get the whole package covered next time. Why? So that when we get to the fourth session, we can devote the whole session on verse 13 to the end of chapter 4, which contains the most preposterous doctrine in Christianity. The rapture. Craziest thing you've ever heard. It has only one thing going for it. It is unquestionably taught by the Scripture. In the Old as well as the New Testament, that may shock many. That for many will be the capstone. But there's an even bigger surprise in chapter 5, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for this faithful servant Paul how you used him, and what an example he is. Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us the fiber, the strength, the character, the commitment of Paul. We, Few of us have that kind of intellect, of course, but we certainly can emulate his boldness, his strength, his effectiveness for you. We pray, Father, that you would indeed empower each of us to be more effective stewards of the opportunities that come to us every day, that we might be more bold in declaring your truth, not by our words, but by our lives, by our relationships, as we commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our coming King, indeed, amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music